Hey, before we get started, if you are ready to pass your exams and become a licensed architect, you're going to want to listen to this. We are revolutionizing architectural education. It is my goal and mission to help as many people as possible become licensed architects while still maintaining their happiness. So introducing the architecture of play. This is our secret podcast series that will transform the way you study and prep for your ARE. Imagine having a happy work-life balance while also pursuing your dream of becoming a licensed architect. I promise you, it is possible. Our seven-episode private podcast gives you exclusive access to the secrets that can make this dream a reality. Remember, the more fun you have, the more likely you are to pass your exams and become a licensed architect. Start listening today at dci.beyoungdesign.com slash secret podcast. Don't miss out. This is going to transform your exam prep and help you enjoy the process of becoming a licensed architect. All right, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Design, Create, Inspire with me, Bryn Young. I'm an architect and entrepreneur with a background in interior design and small business management. I have been running a successful award-winning architecture firm for over six years, and I'm here to discuss all things design and business. There are over 1 million podcasts to choose from, so thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. I hope to bring you value with every episode I create, so let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to Design, Create, Inspire. I'm very excited this week. I think I say that every week. I'm always excited when I'm getting on here and recording a podcast. But this week I am conducting my very first interview. And I am so excited to bring this to you guys because we talk about everything from traveling the world to community involvement to how professors are navigating the virtual side of learning in the studio culture or in this in the studio culture but also just the studio environment in architecture school and design school and how it's kind of um, morphing that whole way of teaching and then we also actually go into uh, community involvement in terms of rebuilding after disasters and I'm just very excited. So I am going to tell you all about the special guest I have once we get into it. So definitely stay tuned. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. I am so excited to introduce you today to Ruben Mohuden. He was, I, has a very interesting story that I'm excited to talk about. He was born in Bangladesh and then at the age of three, his father took him on a 17-year journey to North Africa, Asia, and Europe, which I'm excited to hear a little bit more about. And eventually, he landed in California, where he received his undergrad in architecture and environmental design, and eventually his master's in architecture. He started his design career in firms in LA and New York, and then settled in Chico. And Chico is a small town in Northern California, beautiful. And he is currently the assistant professor of interior architecture at California State University, Chico. And Ruben was actually my professor about a decade ago now, which is wild to think about. (laughs) 
Ruben's hardworking, thoughtful designer who is inspired by giving back through pro bono community projects. He and his students have been involved in some pretty incredible community projects lately that I'm looking forward to diving into a little bit. Um, the main reason I wanted to bring Ruben on today is because obviously we're all in the midst of a pandemic, which has thrown the schooling a little out of whack. So most everybody is either partially or fully virtual these days, and which of course is hard for everybody, but I was very interested to see how the design studios and um, the studio culture is being affected by this. So welcome, Ruben. Thank you for being on here with me today. Thank you. It's very exciting. So I do want to discuss, you know, how that you guys have been handling this disruption of the pandemic. But before we dive into that, I do want to find out a little bit more about your origin story because it is very fascinating. And, you know, it must have been incredible growing up basically around the world. So did this influence basically you pursuing architecture? Yes, absolutely. It definitely was a huge driving force in deciding what to study and what to, you know, when I was thinking about higher education, where do I go? And I was interested in making things always. And mm -hmm. uh, I think the travels and being able to see these amazing places from historical culture, uh, buildings to current uh, infrastructure, these different places, uh, perhaps inspired me or pushed me towards uh, architecture and engineering, if you will. Uh, yeah. I've always been interested in the arts. So I think yeah. you know, having traveled all these places and getting exposed from the, these cultures, um, I was fascinated by the art, engineering, and architecture of these places. Yeah, and I can imagine it probably helped develop you as a designer even more because you've experienced a bunch of different cultures and weather and climates and stuff that probably influence you here, which is pretty cool. So, so then how did you, what brought you to Chico? Because Chico is such a, you know, it's such a, a lot of people have never even heard of it, which I, yes. I it's my favorite town in the world, but. <laughs> it's a fun little town. Uh, in fact, you know, I never had any plans to move to Chico. It, it kind of happened. I think part of my growing up, having moved in so many different places, I could never really have a plan. Like this is the agenda. And this is the 10 year plan. And I was young. So I was traveling with my parents and so we kind of went with the flow. We improv improvised, depending on where we were, where we lived. Uh, and so usually it would be a stay of about three years in each country. And so moving around in Asia and Europe and the Middle East and all those places, about three years to four years uh, for, for each country, I would say. Wow. And, and because there was no direct sort of that stability, if you will, uh, part of me just kind of was willing to explore and be open to new experiences. And, and that's how I ended up in Chico. Uh, when I made a decision about 10, 11 years ago that I'm going to pursue education and transition out of full-time practice mm -hmm. into, uh, into education and then get involved with practice through my academic world, basically. Yeah. And I think that's a really great way to do it because you can kind of do best of both worlds. It's not like because you are a professor, you have to put aside the designing. It's and also, I feel like the younger crowd is um, in, very inspirational. So you probably get inspired working with the students as well. But so, so what, what decide, made you decide to move towards education rather than full-time yeah. practice? Well, you know, I've always been, uh, as mentioned, I, I wasn't 100% sure that I was going to study architecture. I knew I wanted to be doing something that allowed me to make things, uh, whether it be... Uh, 
something small scale, like a piece of furniture, uh, or perhaps a larger scale, uh, perhaps like a house or a structure, and that you would actually walk into. So, you know, my education really started out with uh, a hybrid sort of approach to, I took classes in the fine arts, I took a lot of classes in architecture, graphic design, design, I mean, just kind of like a very liberal uh, general education around the arts, uh, combining architecture, and then having taking a few of the engineering courses along the way. Um, and so that's kind of developed my understanding of architecture. And then part of me decided to go into education because I, by accident, uh, was invited <laughs> to uh, join a jury uh, at UCLA. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend was a professor there at the time, and uh, she was looking for some professionals to come in and talk about the work, just like I invited you. Yeah. And so I went to the session. And I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it was really exciting to see the student work and talk to them. And having recently had graduated, I'd only been out of school for maybe about seven or eight years at the time. So with a little bit of experience, not a whole lot, I have so much more to learn. Um, it was fun to kind of see where I was seven or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really interested in, in engaging more. So I started going to these reviews uh, at the end of the semester. Um, and providing, you know, feedback and, and getting to know the students and understanding them. And during that process, I had an opportunity. They offered me to come in and teach a weekend course in oh, nice. design foundations if I would be willing to. So I'm like, all right, well, I don't have to quit my job to do this. So <laughs> I decided to go in on Saturdays and uh, teach a weekend course uh, on design foundations. And that's how it all started. And then slowly, I think, you know, a few years later, I moved to New York um, to, for work. I got a, a new offer, a new position, ended up joining a company out there. And things were growing really well until the market tanked in 2008. Mm -hmm. And then I found myself uh, married, kid, pregnant, all at the same time, um, out of work. And so mm -hmm. I really started to rethink, what am I going to do? Um, you know, the situation was different. And I really enjoyed the whole teaching experience. So I thought, hey, why not look into more positions or look into a teaching opportunity? And that's how it kind of segued into leaving the full-time architecture, fast-paced world in New York and, uh, and then joining, joining a college town, with a completely different pace. And, yeah, uh, totally different pace. <laughs> years ago. And that's how I, I ended up becoming uh, a full-time professor and currently, you know, I'm an associate professor and, and you are. Yeah. And I can imagine that as a professor, you probably have the opportunity to dive into all the different areas that you're interested in, like furniture design and the engineering side and interior design and the architecture without having to like work at a firm that only does one thing or something. Hey, before we get started, if you are ready to pass your exams and become a licensed architect, you're going to want to listen to this. We are revolutionizing architectural education. It is my goal and mission to help as many people as possible become licensed architects while still maintaining their happiness. So introducing the architecture of play. This is our secret podcast series that will transform the way you study and prep for your ARE. Imagine having a happy work-life balance while also pursuing your dream of becoming a licensed architect. I promise you, it is possible. 
Our seven-episode private podcast gives you exclusive access to the secrets that can make this dream a reality. Remember, the more fun you have, the more likely you are to pass your exams and become a licensed architect. Start listening today at dci.beyoungdesign.com slash secret podcast. Don't miss out. This is going to transform your exam prep and help you enjoy the process of becoming a licensed architect. All right, back to the episode. I think to add to that, one of the biggest reasons that I, it wasn't like I was just looking for a job in, in, in teaching, but the biggest reasons was after working in the field for about 10 years uh, as a junior designer and then going up to a project manager level, uh, when I was managing larger projects, had a small crew of people working with me, younger designers, um, I noticed that there was a, and I think I had the same challenge myself after school graduating and I went to uh, SciArc, Sci- Sci- Company Institute of Architecture. And I felt like I had a very strong sense of design and process and creativity. But here, Ruben, why don't you do a set of construction drawings? And I'm like, okay, where yeah. do I start? So I noticed that, you know, architecture school, and granted, I was lucky that my undergrad was uh, in New York and Buffalo. And it was a very kind of a very practical program with a fine balance of, uh, of the creative aspect of design. Uh, but we had to take a lot of courses and technical courses and construction document courses and structural courses and environmental design courses heavily each semester. Mm-hmm. And then I went to SciArc for grad school. Grad, that was really like a very a place to explore and mm-hmm. experiment and really kind of rethink outside the box and, and rethink the way you think the world could be. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it helped getting out of school and having that practical knowledge and doing a couple of internships along the way. But I noticed in general, after going to these schools and reviewing the work and, and participating in these reviews, I saw that there was, and, and there was a little bit of a lack, and there are, I don't say in a negative way, but there was a disconnect between these beautiful ideas and creativity and then the possibility of actually being able to physically achieve something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you know, a lot of designers, especially now having my own firm, having hired mm-hmm. people over the years, I've noticed a lot of young designers who come in have a challenge. Uh, they might have great skill sets, but understanding how a building comes together uh, becomes uh, a challenge. And, you know, you learn that over time. But I think a lot of that can be brought into the teaching environment. And that's part of the reason I, I work on these real world projects, uh, create these internship programs, allowing students a segue to be able to take a course, which is a real world scenario with real world clients, you know, and then they get to design something. Yeah. And so I think that gives you a sense of uh, one, a sense of responsibility and of the real realities of the design world. Mm -hmm. And and two, that, you know, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, it happens uh, in in playing with and discussing and coordination with a lot of people, Mm -hmm. building inspectors to engineers to clients who all have a say and will affect your project. So how do you manage all that yeah. and still maintain your vision? I think becomes the biggest challenge, at least for me. But no, it definitely oh. does. I mean, because exactly like by the time you have gone through all the code requirements, the zoning, your client requirements, you know, the inspector requirements, like you're saying, the budget, all this stuff, you're really left with a uh, a pretty solid framework of what you can and can't do in terms of design. And so that is very different than 
being in school and you're, you know, designing a monastery that's unlimited budget, that's beautiful and incredible, which of course we all aspire to one day, but. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's important. In, in, as a student, you want to be able to unleash the creative mind of someone and not have them bogged down into realities of gravity and structure and, mm -hmm. and, and our, you know, those kinds of things. But as you develop in the program, um, you know, I think it's important that along the way that you have a good understanding of some of these things, uh, the, reali the reality of, of the practice uh, and the mm -hmm. thing. And so my, going back to my own education, even though I had some of these technical courses, I frankly had a gap. When I joined the field, uh, the first six months was a huge learning curve. And I had to pick up, uh, you know, I had the skill sets. I can draw, I can render, I can use the computer, mm -hmm. I can research. But, you know, I really had to learn some things very quickly um, and really, you know, uh, through mentorship and the seniors at the office were, you know, teaching me a lot of this stuff through red lines and, and whatnot. And you pick it up very quickly. And then the first time I saw the building, like, oh, my God, I, I remember I drew this line. Here it is. Yeah. So that made that connection, which, mm -hmm. you know, it stays with you forever. And I yeah. think, um, you know, in school, we get bogged down with a lot of things. But at the same time, you know, we're in a changing world and, you know, the way architectural education and, and maybe a lot of people might disagree with me, but I'm going to just say this. Yeah, do it. <laughs> education is lacking in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, design education is lacking in many ways. I think there's a lot of creativity involved in it, which is fantastic. Um, but at the same time, I think there needs to be, um, you know, an understanding of not architecture with a big A, but architecture that really deals with human, human beings and humanity and people and cities and public spaces and, how do we really live in our world? Mm -hmm. uh, not like look at beautiful buildings, but yeah. really use them. And I think that's where the disconnect maybe sometimes happens. Mm -hmm. But, you know, every school is different. And, yeah. and perhaps when, when students choose their schools, they should be aware of, you know, where, where some, certain schools are much more technically uh, sound. Some schools are more creative. Some schools have a nice balance between the two, um, you know. And, and do your internships. You know, those are yeah, right. well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think it would be important to kind of differentiate between the schools. That would be really nice. But also, yeah, I remember in, in grad school, them basically saying, we only have so much time. And so you have to go get your internship or your work hours in order to learn all this stuff. But then you get into the real world. And yeah, I remember being so insecure about details like, because there was maybe one class that we learn details and it's, you know, that's, it's scary. And that's like really important. <laughs> exactly. So, and I think, so I think what you're doing is really great if you are bringing on the students and then actually, you know, if they're seeing through construction, cause that was really helpful for me is walking through the site at different intervals because you could actually see, okay, it makes sense why I'm drawing the vapor barrier there or why I'm drawing the insulation there because I'm actually seeing it put together. So having that real world experience with the yeah creative and how to think like a designer and everything is super important. But so, so with that, I mean, how, how is that now transitioning into virtual because studio is such a hands-on thing. Oh, yes. It's, it's very um, collaborative and you learn from looking at what your peers are doing or you guys walking over behind your, our shoulder and suggesting, excuse me, suggesting things. So how do you do that now? How's that navigated? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm figuring it out every day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, 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 I think, figure. <laughs> uh, I think the, honestly, 
you, we have a general plan, like, okay, this is the course uh, content. Uh, this is how we're going to deliver it and through a series of lectures and, and assignments and projects. And so the lecture part is easy because you present it as a PowerPoint or whatnot. Um, and then you get to work. And I think the biggest challenge is not necessarily seeing what's the, what the students are doing, but being able to help them. Mm-hmm. Is where because of the disconnect right and so i can give them a lot of theory i can say hey you can try this move that wall over make it thicker look at contrast you know try rhythm apply more principles uh, but you know the model is not maybe well crafted or the, the drawing is not perfectly drawn right and so mm-hmm. i can't reach out there and just point that out and correct it and yeah, say okay yeah. here's how to draw detail or here's how to draw a wall section and so what happens is the students do the work, they scan it, they you know, photograph it, they create a little presentation booklet, and they send it to me. And then we have a discussion about the work we go from page to page. So, um, and this is foundations. It's a little different when you get to third year, second year, but first year, it's really, you know, part of our program where I teach is the first year, I don't necessarily jump in with digital tools right away. Mm-hmm. I bring in the digital tools towards the end of the semester. And so we're still picking up pencils and, and learning how to do basic sketching and drafting Good. and things like that. Um, and then eventually towards the end, they'll start learning how to put that stuff on CAD or SketchUp and some of the other softwares. And then by Studio 2, they're more digitally sound. So what happens is when you're digitally sound, you can open up that software and you can open up that model and I can work with you on that model, no mm-hmm. problem. But I can't sketch with you on a, on a drawing. And so a simple thing could be as... We just handed a bunch of assignments in uh, from Graphics One drafting, their first drafting project. So, you know, it's a basic floor plan of a house with a couple of bedrooms and a kitchen. And uh, it's all about labeling correctly, line weight symbols, uh, you know, elevation markers, all those things, doing it correctly and fine tuning it, Uh, hatching, line work. And, you know, some of the scans that came in nicely look great but some of the can scans were not that great some people photograph their work and send it in so you know it's hard to maintain that level of quality mm-hmm. and so we're slowing things down and i would rather do something really well than try to get through the semester with kind of so-so projects you know yeah. um and so it's slowing the process down uh one thing it has done is it has streamlined the content so it's like a, what's really important, mm-hmm. you know, we can, let's take out this, let's take out that, you know. Less um, busy work. Yeah, less busy work. Which is good. Work. Yeah. yeah. And uh, some of the advantages, they have more one-on-one attention mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and being in a large classroom. Um, so are they, are they only doing individual projects now? There's no group? There is going to be some group work. And so by the time they get more, uh, more uh, I would say, I guess they become more aware of different softwares mm-hmm. and start to use some of the more sophisticated softwares. Then they can do group work, um, you know, because they don't have to be physically together. But mm-hmm. physical model making and drawing is a little bit more challenging. And so we are going to be digitizing things more uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, the use of software uh, early on in the semester rather than later on in the semester. Um, and, but, you know, the biggest challenge is really like, you know, my student made this model the other day and she made this model with this material. She wanted this really smooth flowing line. And so she was able to work it, but then there were parts of the model that crinkled a little bit and so mm-hmm. they became angular. So we were talking about that and she's like, well, I tried so hard and I, I just can't seem to have it. I know it's just a simple two second fix. All I have to do is show it to her. <laughs> I can't seem to show it to her because I don't physically have exactly what yeah. she did, right? 
that's where the disconnect happens. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I mentioned to my students that the, the foundations folks that you'll have a little bit of remedial learning, you know, uh, when things go back to normal. But I also think that things are not going to go back to normal, normal ever. And it's yeah. going to be a hybrid system going forward. That's what I was going to ask is if you, yeah, if, and maybe that's good. I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah, there, I don't know. And, and, and I, I think, you know, this semester, because of the situation, we had to go all fully online, um, in my studios, foundation studios and everything. Um, and so we're figuring some things out. Um, by next semester, it's going to be a lot better, a lot more fine tuned. Mm -hmm. um, we're using software apps such as Miro. I don't know if you've heard of mm -hmm. Miro. Basically, it's a platform where you can have 20, 30, 40 people share their work okay. all at the same time. So imagine laying out 20 projects on a huge conference table oh, wow. and be able to see them all at the same time and walk around them. That's and so cool. everybody scans their, uh, their work and then it's mm -hmm. like layout and you can move the drawings around. And anybody who draw, writes a comment, you can use a tablet, you can write a comment or draw a line and everybody sees it. Mm. Uh, and so we are going to be looking into some of those uh, platforms I haven't done that yet in my semester, this semester yet, because I have the first year foundation students. Yeah. Next semester, I'm going to have the second year folks. And so they're going to be a little bit more sophisticated in terms of their knowledge of technology. And yeah. so we're going to be available that a little bit more. And I, I can imagine that this is maybe an opportunity to, and I was you know, mentioning for the students even, to find out what is needed for something like this, for like a design studio. and you know, capitalize on that, make develop a new app or something, you know, that, you know, can turn, turn into this and then streamline it in the future. And then that can even go towards uh, virtual offices and all that sort of thing to still have that collaborative, collaborative studio experience, but virtually. Yeah, we've also created like a group chat system where the students can talk to each other and, you know, share each other's work. Um, you know, from feedback from some of the students have gotten mixed reviews, some, mm -hmm enjoy it they're like this is great uh, I, I literally have you one-on-one -on -one and mm -hmm. i can talk about my project and that's it and some folks are just like man i really need my friends around me to be able to be creative and, mm -hmm. and develop ideas and learn from each other you know the other disadvantage is uh, field trips you know we, yeah. we're, we're stuck to videos we're like yesterday we watched a a clip of maya lynn's vietnam memorial uh, about mm -hmm. her story as a young student, you know, how she came out and developed this design, which changed the way we think about memorial design since then. Mm -hmm. uh, and so highly influential project, but she was very young. She was a grad student. Um, and we looked at how politics and our social environments play a role in the, in the creating of and influence the making of architecture, for example, the Vietnam Memorial. Um, and so we, we looked at like how material, the shiny black granite polished, making this mirror-like surface why it was the right material, why not any other material, you know, and, and what the words became this textural surface individualized by uh, in order of the name, uh, in order of the time of death rather than last name so that they're individualized and memorialized individually. And then of course you find the words, you find the name, you see the name and you see the void and the reflection uh, of a world beyond that you cannot reach. Uh, where this person is perhaps, and then the tears fall, right? Mm -hmm. So this heavy emotional sort of idea made by this simple wall. In mm -hmm. fact, she really didn't want to call it a wall. It was more like a, an edge revealed from the earth, uh, you know, exposing these names uh, that, have, uh, that have given, that have fallen. And so something so simple, yet a powerful material 
polished in a certain way, created in a certain way, detailed in a certain way to create this powerful message, right? Mm -hmm. So we were talking about basic things like this instead of, you know, architecture doesn't have to be huge, big, grand to be emotionally provocative. Mm -hmm. Um, So these concepts are okay. And we watch videos. Um, but for example, a lot of times I'd like to go to a construction site or I'd mm-hmm. like to go, there's a concrete pour happening. Let's go check out this concrete pour and all the building system students go in there and look at it. I mean, it's pretty, pretty cool to look at that and see it. So those are some things that we're not going to be able to do, um, because of accessibility. Um, so there are both advantages and disadvantages. I think, uh, the other, and, uh, whether you look at it as a negative or positive, you have to be extremely organized. Yeah. Um, you can't just have a bunch of stuff in a folder, loose, uh, carry your stuff around, put your models in your storage. You have to document them. You have to photograph them. You have to scan them. You have to make them organized so that when you present them, you're not there to explain anything. You're on a screen. Uh, it has to be self-explanatory to the visual for, for the people who are looking at the project. Mm-hmm. So you're, we're forcing, it's forcing our students to become a heck of a lot more organized. Yeah, which is maybe, I mean, that's good in the long run, but yeah, I mean, that's really difficult, especially like, yeah, having all your sketches and having that all in your small dorm space, for yes. example, and yes. yeah, that's not easy. We're and, also working on an 11 by 17 format this semester. Oh. We're not going any larger than that because mm-hmm. I don't know what the situation is with people's mm-hmm. homes or apartments. Um, but I did say that, please, 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 create a little area for yourself, a table, a chair, so that you can work there for the rest of the semester. You might be making a model and you might not want to move it sometimes. And so mm-hmm. give yourself a dedicated spot. Um, you know, yeah. and everything is different. Sometimes they're laying in bed in the class. You can kind of tell <laughs> up and, you know, sometimes they're ready and ready, ready to go, prepared. So, yeah. you know. so, so is Chico State talking, is there t- in the talks of going back in person at any point? Yeah. No. Yeah, they have announced next semester f- spring is also going to be online. So perhaps it's all, I have no idea. Yeah. What happened in my case, in fact, you know, in the beginning, before the summer started, pandemic broke out in March, we went online. Everybody went online mid-semester. Mm-hmm. And so we were like in March, so we're like wrapping the semester up. We're not really recreating the whole class anymore, but we would have the summer to redesign courses, lectures, all that kind of stuff ready for the fall. And so they said, since I have a studio course, I have a huge lab, the new building, um, we could have a couple of different sessions and do like a hybrid. Mm-hmm. And so the plan was to do a hybrid. We would meet like four or five times a semester in the class. Um, and then the rest of it would be online. And that changed like overnight. Yeah. Started. And then they announced within the first week that school is going to be fully online. And so basically the first week of class, I had to redesign my delivery process and assignments because all of a sudden like, oh gosh, I'm not going to be in class. I can't give my students materials to work with, paper to work with. I usually give them some supplies to start Mm -hmm. out with. None of that is going to happen. So we, uh, yeah, we, we uh, you know, we're we're moving, we're we're working and uh, there you go. Yeah. Wow. So are you dying to get back in full, full, what do you, in person? You know, I, I like, I'm, I'm enjoying both. Um, yeah. I really miss my classroom. I'm a person who's very social mm-hmm. and, uh, and very interactive. I like to talk to people. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll pick up the phone and call them instead of sending a text message, right? This is the kind of person I am. And so mm-hmm. part of me 
responds to my environment. Um, this is something growing up in so many different places. Uh, being the new kid around the block every time, I had to learn how to kind of, you know, be accepting my, of my environment and explore new things. Mm-hmm. Because I was always a new person. No one's really going to come to me. I have to go to them. And that mentality kind of, you know, made me someone who's very social and, and, and I like to, I'm very much, like I said, react to my environment. So in, in the virtual world, your environment is really just where I am right now. It's my yeah. and it's not the classroom. So it's a different level of energy. Um, so I miss that. I miss that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that in the future, certain classes can totally be taught online. Some classes, not all. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like some courses in studio can also be done hybrid where we can do a lot of, uh, you know, online and in-class sessions, mixing them up together. That would create some advantages in terms of logistics and uh, cost, maybe, I don't know, um, in the long run for both students and faculty. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. I mean, we use, I mean, um, often a lot of my projects happen to, not a lot, but some of my projects happen to be out of town. And so like in the Bay Area and, uh, or out of state. And so I usually travel once or twice to see the site and do, you know, basic research or maybe once during construction, but the rest of it is done virtually. And so mm-hmm. having had a little bit of experience working on Zoom uh, with clients uh, from different parts of the world and different parts of the country, has definitely helped me transition into this system um, easier than I've seen some other faculty. Yeah, I bet. That's, it's a wild uh, transition that we've all had to make so quickly, but it sounds like you guys are doing a pretty good job and, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's moving. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, things are progressing. Students seem to be, no one's coming to me saying, I'm not getting it and good. I'm lost completely and I need help. Everyone's moving along, some better than others. That's just normal. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I do want to, you know, backtrack to your work and your community involvement. Um, You guys are in Chico, which has experienced a lot of some of the most devastating fires around you guys in the most recent years. And, um, you know, the biggest one being Paradise, just up the hill from you. And uh, that's actually where my family, my husband's family's from. So my in-laws lost their home during that and just... Yeah, yeah, seeing seeing the the videos and um, you know, luckily like they were up at that time and able to get out, but it was just it's obviously been devastating. And then even Chico's impact in terms of all these now influx of people from Paradise coming down to Chico. I know it's it's been a really big um impact on the community. And so uh, I have read and seen that you guys are getting involved with the students in designing homes and and it's, i want to hear more about that it's super in, in interesting yeah uh so this all happened uh you know part of our department anything you know going back to you know my teaching philosophy um having moved so many places having experienced so many different cultures and different people from different races um part of me kind of reacts to my environment so if i'm when i remember when i was in africa i wasn't trying to be bengali i was trying to be you know understand, eat the, eat, learn the language, eat the food, you know, mm-hmm. go to the galleries, really understand this culture as they are. And so I tried not to be a foreigner or a tourist. Uh, in the beginning, of course, you are, and then you kind of assimilate. So in three years, and it's time for you to go. 
So <laughs> it happens very quickly and abruptly. So I was able to pick up on, on these cultures and then move. And so now that we live in such a globally diverse society and coming to the U.S. was kind of a very interesting experience for me. I was 17 when I moved here. And uh, this is one of the only countries in the world where I saw a melting pot, a truly a real melting pot of people. Mm-hmm. I was in New York and I was like, you walk one block and you hear 20 languages, you know, in the city. And you're like, wow, if you want to eat, uh, what kind of food do you want to eat? There's, yeah. there's everything there from all over the world. So it was a fascinating experience because all the countries that I lived in uh, were more generic in their population. So I lived in Saudi Arabia, mostly Saudis. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are expats. Um, I lived in Thailand, mostly Thai, but there are expats. Uh, but when I came to the U.S., especially in New York City, I was amazed uh, by, you know, the, the, the differences in culture and demographics and, and the fact that you kept me standing right next to a very high level person from a big corporation uh, and me standing next to someone who happens to be the janitor of that corporation at the same time. So mm-hmm. this is a very interesting dichotomy. And so my work has always... Uh, been influenced by my environment and and so a lot of the practice that I've done has been uh, I try to work on projects that have some kind of a cultural connotation so a lot of my clients are not necessarily from here some are some are immigrants uh, some are hybrids like me um, partially because I feel like I understand cultures and I I understand how to work with culture and translate architecture which is culturally relevant Mm -hmm. Um, and not necessarily you know if you have a Chinese uh, you know, client, you design a Chinese architecture. It's right. not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just understanding the way we live, you know, yeah. uh, more than the way a building looks like. Um, and so I was fascinated by that. My, the companies I used to work for also did a lot of uh, residential work that was uh, housing and individual private residences that was international and national. So I worked, worked with a lot of different people from different countries. Uh, so I pursued uh, my career where I was able to work in multicultural environments from clients to, to folks I work with. And then eventually when I transitioned into teaching, um, you know, early on, even during my professional work, uh, professional time, before I went full-time to teaching, there was time where I was just teaching part-time at UCLA. Um, I started doing, getting involved with community projects uh, just as a pro bono, like people do competitions mm-hmm. to, you hone their skills and, and, you know, other than just real, real projects, they do competitions and people have hobbies. They, they draw or paint or they go fishing. And I have plenty of hobbies, but I wanted to do something, um, you know, that was community oriented because I was working on housing projects and residential projects and some really high end ones in LA and New York. And I wanted to be something community oriented. During that process, I basically started working on small community projects. Uh, one of the first ones being, a, uh, an aviary for an animal assisted therapy shelter in Los Angeles, the Vietnam, uh, the veterans uh, uh, hospital in Westwood. And so they wanted to come up with a design, small little, you know, 50 feet by 50 feet space, come up with a design where we can bring homeless parrots and homeless veterans together to heal. That was the concept. <laughs> I love it. You know, and so here I am teaching at UCLA. I'm in the elevator going down the building and I hear Dr. Uh, Lindner, who was the, the original person on the project and her partner talking and they were complaining about how the architecture bids came in way too high and there's no way we can afford this project, blah, blah, blah. 
So I just kind of like was nosy and I overheard. And we were in the building. I'm a professor there. So I said, hey, by the way, could I, not me being nosy here, but I was just curious about your project a little bit more because I heard about parents and veterans and I'm fascinated. Can you, can you tell me more? And she, she was very happy to share her project. And so by the end of the conversation, I said, would you be interested to work with a group of students who would help you design this thing? And then we can build a model and then, you know, raise some money with the community and see where it goes. And she was like, uh, okay, let's try this out. And I created an assignment, an internship program. Uh, and I said, it's a volunteer program. If you want to join in, you can join in. And that's how it all started. I, I, that was my first project. And I thought maybe a few students would volunteer. 20 kids showed up. That's awesome. And I was like, okay, great. And so we did a bunch of charrettes. We built models. It was a lot of fun. And uh, they earned some studio credit at the end of the semester. And then we were able to showcase some, some designs, some renderings, uh, some models. And then we showed it to the VA hospital. They were, they were very excited about it. And they said, you know what? With all this stuff, we can raise money. So they started doing these community fundraisers. People would come and see these models and drawings and renderings of people and interactions with parrots and healing and and next thing we have like $200,000 uh, and then we started building it. And so, and I, these are, these are my students from 2003, 2004. So they have, they're like you, they've all grown up, have families, have practices or have mm -hmm. become successful designers themselves. And we're all in touch still today. And we still talk about that project uh, because it was such a memorable project. Yeah. And they could start their portfolio even and their experience yeah. with that. Yeah, and, and granted, each one of them have gone into much bigger, I don't want to say better, but much bigger mm -hmm. ideas and projects and infrastructural ideas and have traveled the world and whatnot. But I, I, for some reason, they still go back to that one little project. And it's like, you know what? That was so much fun. We really changed people's lives, you know, with nothing, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is, you know, with nothing, literally just some good design work. That's all yeah, I do. Some ideas. Um, some ideas, yeah. yeah. So that, when I started uh, thinking about full-time teaching, I, I had to market myself like, okay, well, I don't want to just come in and teach. Everybody teaches. So what, what makes you so special about your teaching? What is your philosophy? And so basically I presented an idea about community work and the fact that, you know, we need to start thinking about our communities more because at the end, these are the environments we live in. And unfortunately, most of the architecture that we do are, are, are usually for the people with the big budgets and, mm -hmm. and opportunities that, um, you know, that are only available to those kinds of projects. And, and so what happens to the rest of the stuff? And so I think, you know, we don't have to necessarily design architecture with a big A, but good ideas well put together that can change the way you live and for, for a better way. And so the community project idea was a way for me to teach, uh, not just teach skill sets that's needed in the real world, but to really instill a sense of responsibility within my students before they graduate. Yes, I got some experience, but two, in the long run, hopefully they realize the work that they do impacts the environment. Mm -hmm. and, and if we take a little bit more care and attention, uh, then we perhaps will have better environments to lead in the future. So that's kind of how it all started. And it became a very core part of my teaching beyond the regular classes and the day-to-day -day things that I do. Uh, the community work uh, keeps me in practice uh, involved in the practice, learning, you know, there's things changing every day, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, you do it more than I do. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and at the same time, it allows my students a connection into the community uh, before they graduate. Mm -hmm. And it helps the community um, really uh, achieve something that they've been wanting to without any cost. Um, 
And secondly, I think it also creates a standing for our program um, within the community as a community as a program that is really involved with with their community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, Rebuild Paradise was very natural progression. You know, I've worked on many different projects over the years. So when the fire happened, um, the first thing you know it was March, and so the first thing, uh, sorry, it was October 2018, and I'm sorry, November. oh November, sorry, yes, November. <laughs> uh, so November, and so it was coming in, coming to the end of the semester, and so we're like, okay, uh, f- spring is starting up. What do we do? What do we do? And the first thing I did was I was teaching foundations. And I said, okay, this semester we're going to design a shelter, a small little shelter uh, that is uh, like, can be a bomb shelter. It can be a hurricane shelter. It could be an earthquake shelter, whatever it is, but a shelter. Mm -hmm. So we're going to investigate the idea of shelters. And then we did that project and the seniors did the same project, but more more advanced level. They really did a more of an infrastructural design. And then come to find out along the way that uh, students from Montana State and Cal Poly Pomona, uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo architecture students were also working on something similar. And so I contacted all of them. I said, you guys are all here in Par- come to paradise. So what if we have this huge exhibition of work between the three different universities of all the projects, you know, hundreds of projects of students coming up with ideas and concepts for, for paradise. And we had this thing happen at the end of the spring semester. So the community, it was open to the community. It was uh, presented up in the paradise Alliance church down here on campus. Uh, it was open to the public. Lots of people came. And I just sat there and documented information. I talked to a bunch of people. And by the end of the conversation, um, uh, Rebuild Paradise Foundation, the director Charles Brooks approached me and we started talking and he's like, hey, uh, would you be interested to develop some real projects for us? And, uh, and as, a, as a professor, I said, would you be interested to work with some students? <laughs> yes. The exact same line that I used the first time. And, I, and they were like, well, how would that work? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, uh, it would be under the professional guidance of myself and a licensed uh, professional engineer um, here in Chico who would be willing to volunteer their time uh, to work with me on the architecture side and develop a series of uh, designs. And we'll, we'll work on, really focus on not houses for anybody, but, you know, people who are not insured uh, who want to rebuild. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and this is not like here, we're doing a bunch of free plans available for the community, but rather we would go through the foundation. You would have to apply for a grant to, to receive the plan to work with. Uh, but the plan would be master planned and approved by the county and the city. Mm-hmm. And the only thing missing on the, on the set would be a plot plan. Mm-hmm. And that's something the homeowner would have to hire an engineer or an architect to get that developed uh, on the final stages, should they choose to, to build that plan. Mm-hmm. And so we started out that way. And, and, and as any architecture project, we don't sit here and come up with designs. We invited the community to participate. And it was incredible. The students organized these community events. They talked to people, they documented information. They went up to the, the location, they took pictures, collected data. And then we started talking to builders and engineers and we started saying, hey, what are your thoughts about building in the fire? What kind of materials would you want to use? What kind of venting systems? What kind of finishing systems? You know, all those things. And we made a tally of all that stuff. And we started compiling all that information. And at the end, we had this huge book of information, materials, venting types, uh, insulation type, and all kinds of components, basically. And then we took all those components and started making floor plans with them. So rather than making a floor plan and finding components to it, mm-hmm. 
going backwards. Um, and so we, we took this component and said, what can we do with these to make architecture with, or, or small, small scale residential? And, and we talked with the engineer and the design approach was something that can be simply built, mm-hmm. engineered trusses, something simple enough that a homeowner with the help of some people can actually build themselves. Mm. Um, and we came up with four or five, I think five, um, still working on the fifth one, uh, plans um, that all share different parts. And so, you know, just to get an economy of scale. Right. Uh, and so the students designed, basically, we, we started in the fall of 2019. And then we went till 2020 spring. And by from the fall to spring, March, when COVID happened, uh, we were able to come up with the designs, the schematic design with renderings and presented to the community and got it approved. And then COVID happened. And then the internet was dissolved. And so uh-huh. I, I ended up in my office with a stack of design drawings, basically a floor plan and four exterior elevations uh, of the five different plans that we all came up with. So I'm looking at the stack this summer. I'm like, okay, well, they have to go into the building department. So basically my job, this is you know, my, my job as a pro bono designer, um, I'm basically working on these plans and uh, getting them permitted. So oh I've got gosh. the first two completed, submitted over the summer. I submitted them right before campus, well, school opened in, in August, and we just got approved. There were a couple of revisions required, and we just got approved uh, about a week ago. Good. Uh, so the now number two is going out to permitting, and then three and then four, and then five is going to be a container house. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then along the way, you know, it's, it's not just me working with the community with my students, but a lot of it is research component. And so a lot of the data that we're compiling, we're going to be using this as an open source uh, mm-hmm. library. And so we've worked with, uh, you know, Rebuild North Bay. We've worked with other organizations. I know we've been contacted by people up in Oregon for the fire mm-hmm. And so all of this information is going to be available to the public. Uh, so should you want to rebuild in a fire prone zone, here's some guidelines. Uh, yeah. I to look at exactly I love that because when you were mentioning all that that's exactly what I was thinking about is that you know Chico's not the only place or that experiences fires all over the world I mean you know and so having just like that that kind of blueprint and of course there's the fire 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 marshals like set you know things but but to have all these different um designers and engineers and and MEP people coming in together to design something really great is such a great way to make it accessible to all these people. Absolutely. And these are not like, you know, beautiful types of, I mean, they're very simple, modest structures, right? Mm-hmm. And part of the reaction was, uh, remember right after the fires, I spent a lot of time, um, uh, what we did right after the fires at the uh, Disaster uh, Relief Center, DRC, uh, yeah, DRC, they, they converted Sears downtown, the mall. Mm-hmm. They took Sears and they converted it to this uh, center. And so AIA had a booth there. And so I got a call from AIA and saying, hey, Ruben, you're up in Chico. Uh, would you be interested to kind of help us with this, manning this booth? I'm like, I'm already down there. You guys want to man a booth? I think it's a little too early right now. The fire just happened. <laughs> They're like, we just want to be an information source, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. So if you want me to come up here and man the booth, I'll be happy to be here. I'm in town. And then we created a schedule and there were people from Sacramento and other folks, other architects coming in to, to volunteer their time. And I would be sitting here and nobody was asking us about how to rebuild at the time. Fire just happened. People were freaking out. Yeah. 
So we ended up becoming like an information source. Like, okay, you need help with your insurance? Okay, let's go here. We'll take you to this line. We can help you there. And a lot of it was really listening. Like people just wanted to vent. Mm-hmm. They just like, hey, you know what? I'm just, I just got out of here and this is what happened to me and blah, blah, blah. And insane stories about survival. And I just, it was heavy hearted days. At the end of the day, I'd go home and I'd be like, oh my God, I don't know how you go through this. I can't and even so, imagine. And so what happened was I, I basically was listening to, I heard that they're not just individuals, um, people who wanted to live up there had a certain lifestyle. Yeah. They also, the smaller towns like Concow and other little Yankee Hill, places that got burned down other than Paradise, they were generational communities. Like, yeah third, fourth, fifth generation of communities sitting and living together from one house to another. Uh, these almost like these communes almost. Yeah. And, and so we're like, well, how do we even tackle something like that? And cost was a big issue. And that's why the economy of scale, simple to build. Um, these people eventually, when, when we started working on projects and, and granted since then, I've been doing a lot of private projects too up there, more of the custom homes. Um, you know, it's the same issues. Like, well, what, what kind of material am I going to use? You know, what kind of, how far should I plant my tree? You know, and, and so these guidelines are standardized mm-hmm. and they can be good practices. And these are guidelines that we're not just coming up with, but through our research of talking to different people who survive fires, builders who have rebuilt after fires, getting their input uh, and was, was very crucial. And so it becomes like this little library of information. Yeah. And so... That's kind of how we got involved as students. And then, uh, you know, frankly, the idea was to get these students continue with the construction documents and submit and everything. But that portion didn't really happen. Get, I get to do that for the <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, man. Well, it's, but it's so good that you're even getting to that point and that you're even have submitted and have, are starting the permit process rather than, you know, just being an idea and then not executing. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, every community project that I have taken on, I, I won't, I do not usually take on, and this is extensive discussions with whoever we're doing the work for. Mm-hmm. Is this something you guys are going to just kind of just like, what are you going to do? Are you going to mm-hmm. do this or not? If you're going to do this, we're seriously going to do this too. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to do this, you just want some ideas. We're going to approach this as just ideas. Also, we're not going to spend the time and have 20 community meetings and, and, you know, all these kinds of things. We'll just generate some concepts for you. So it all depends how much the buy-in is from the other party. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, Rebuild Paradise Foundation has been fantastic to work with, very supportive, um, and they've helped us all, all the time along the, along the way in terms of gathering, organizing, and all that. And, you know, like this project, you know, the students, sure, they didn't get to do the CD portion, but they did, you know, drawings and renderings and models. But more than that, they, they did community organizations. They sat there yeah. with people and they gathered information. They did a lot of programming, months of programming. And I think that's crucial. We don't get to do that in the classroom. That is uh, so crucial. Even just talking to the community and, and listening for their feedback and designing for that. Because, you know, a lot of times if you have to design something and go in front of a community board, a review board, you want to make sure that you're designing for the, the stakeholders, the people who, who are yeah. going to be using it and enjoying it. And, and so learning that process like you said, you can't really learn that in the classroom. And so it's really an invaluable experience that they were able to get for sure. Exactly. I remember there was, uh, this was like months ago, uh, midstream when we had our schematic plan. I said, you know what, we ought to meet the, the building department and we should go to, to speak to perhaps one of the plan checkers or maybe the lead plan checker there and tell them 
show them the stuff and see what they say. And sure enough, he was willing to meet with us. Like, oh, he was so excited. He was like, you guys are going to bring five plus. Yeah, come on up. <laughs> presented, and he had a bunch of things to say. And he went through the code book. He's like, make sure you have this note on there. Make sure you have this on there. Good. And so, yeah, we, we created a, like a standardized sheet of notes that are going to go in each set. Uh, awesome. Which direction they go into. So they're, they're seeing the streamlining, the efficiency, how things work. Um, you know, uh, in, in real world uh, versus say, you know, in the studio. And so I think that was a, that was a priceless experience. And more than anything, I, I know these projects are going to, they're going to uh, haunt them in a good way for the rest yeah. of the yeah. For sure. Well, I definitely want to share some of the maybe renderings or floor plans or whatever you guys have for that. I know that people would be definitely interested yeah. in that. Okay. Share some yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. If you can email me some and then I'll yes. do a blog post with yes, this absolutely. and then, yeah. And I'll share all that. Okay. So I do want to, you know, I, I love this. I have to ask you when you're not designing or teaching or working with the community, what do you like to do? What's your hobbies? <laughs> if you have time. <laughs> oh yeah. I do make time for my hobbies. You know, I, I think, you know, what's interesting is you get out of school, right? And I went to these really hardcore architecture schools where we spent every night slept in the studio. Oh, I don't miss those times at all. No. Um, but I remember those days at SciArc and, uh, rainy leaking roofs and the <laughs> night, yes. all kinds of crazy stuff. It's uh, we were in a warehouse back then. Um, anyhow, so I remember when I started working, I was like, wow, we have a lot of time. Like I'm done five o'clock, six o'clock. I'm usually done. You know, yeah. sometimes I would work late, but the weekends were mine typically, you know? So I started picking up on hobbies and really I like making things, even though I'm, you know, being a builder, designer, I, I still make things. So furniture, making furniture and doing art was sort of a, a starting hobby. Mm -hmm. And then that all stopped, I would say, when I started teaching full time and, and my practice started a couple of years after teaching. Um, now I really try to get away from architecture and design. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because when I was younger, I was so passionate and still am, but I was like, this is the life I'm going to live my life doing, eating, eating <laughs> all, the time. all day long. And now it's like, no, I need a little break, you know? And I think, you know, I, I like to go fishing, nature, you know, those kinds of things uh, more than anything. Nice. But yeah, and Chica is so perfect for that. Yes, absolutely. But I have a feeling like everything I do, my wife makes fun of me. She's like, everything you do has some kind of a design association with it. Well, it's, 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 it's directly architecture, but there is yeah. something there. <laughs> it's in the blood, for sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I, I love all of this. It's so... Um, it's so important, not only just, you know, the new style of learning, but then also the community involvement and it's very inspiring. Um, is there any way for, I don't know if you're active on like social media or anything or for people to find you or ways for people to support you, I can link all the. Oh yeah, absolutely. Info. Come check out us, uh, check us out on Instagram. Okay. What's your uh, handle? Uh, what is it? Uh, design. SI. SI. Okay. I'll link it uh, to I'll confirm. Send you a, a link no okay and uh yeah and so uh i basically post things of everyday things i don't really post anything like finished products it's more like here's what we're working on today you know process photos That's and awesome. sketches and stuff That's exactly. awesome okay Ruben, yeah. well, thank you hey, thank you for having me yeah and I, was, I was able to share a little bit of the academic perspective you know a lot of times we we tend to have this notion of academics being sort of academics and uh 
we just draw and, and come up with ideas. But uh, I think more and more so because of the current conditions of where we are in our environments and the social challenges and issues that we are dealing with in our everyday in our cities, um, you know, we as designers and architects have to become much more aware. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't start when you start your profession. It starts when you start your education. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and the way of learning uh, and seeing the world can help, uh, you know, how you project yourself down the line. And so I hope to sort of bring that into my students because at the end of the day, yeah, I could be someone who's fairly creative, I think, but there's a side of me which is extremely practical. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think it's a fine balance between the two. Uh, and that's something they don't necessarily teach you in school. And so yeah. I hope to be able to bridge that gap uh, for students uh, as well, they progress. That's perfect. And I think that it's good because I do have a lot of people who um, follow me and um, the, the podcast who are students or who are interested in going to school. Um, that's honestly the, the demographic who reaches out to me the most is awesome. people saying, sh sh I've seen your story. Should I go to architecture school or, I, you know, what is this the right path for me? So I think this will be a really good opportunity for them to hear kind of what it's actually really like. And cause I did just do a, a past episode on kind of the architecture side of studio and, you know, how you really got to love it and be in it from a student's point of view. But um, to talk about the whole community involvement is really exciting and it is such a, an amazing thing to go through. So I think it'll be inspiring for people for sure. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. I'll send You're welcome. you examples of pictures and we'll be in touch. Perfect. Thanks, Ruben. Bye. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you. thank you guys so much for sticking around. And I really hope that you found value in that. I really enjoyed talking with Ruben. I love his approach to architecture and his approach to teaching and really kind of uh, breaking down the divide between school and the real world of architecture. I will link his Instagram on there. Definitely go follow him and also follow me at beyoungdesign.com. And please rate and review us. We love to hear what you're saying and we love to hear feedback. So we hope you enjoyed and can't wait to talk to you next week. Have a good one. Bye.